I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I came to thee. Holy Father, keep them through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one, as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And as thou hast sent me into the world, even so I also send them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Amen. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. John 17. It's a portion of Scripture called Jesus' High Priestly prayer. And in this beautiful prayer, Jesus is praying for his apostles. He is asking the Father to protect these disciples, to intercede for them, to give them strength as trials will inevitably come their way. Jesus says to God what God surely already knows. And yet in saying these things, Jesus demonstrates the value of prayer to speak words to God, to ask God for intercession, even to simply communicate your desires to God. It is an act of trust. And even though, of course, we defend that Jesus is Yahweh, the name that God gives himself uh, to Moses in Exodus, Jesus is not the Father. And so his praying is an indication that there is this distinction, and even the Son of God, prays to the Father to ask for intercession. So a very small takeaway from this high priestly prayer could be that if Jesus prays in such a manner, well, we should too. But nestled in this prayer is a remarkable phrase, I believe it's verse 16, a phrase whose meaning and context needs to be constantly explored and considered. 
Jesus says of his apostles, which I would certainly extrapolate to all of his future apostles and disciples, he says, they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Or in the King James says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, there are really two incredible things about that, that simple phrase. The first is that even though we live in this world, it's all that we know. You know, we grocery shop in this world, we work in this world, we raise families in this world, we drive automobiles in this world. We're not of this world. The second is this equivocation that Jesus makes us with him. Now, now we as good Christians know that we are less than Jesus in, in every respect, but Jesus does lift us up to his level in this regard. In the same way that he is not of this world or he does not belong to this world, we don't either. That's pretty remarkable. Now, let's unpack this. We should begin by asking, in what way is Jesus not of this world? There's a commentary I, I like, and it offers a, a great summary. It offers three ways to consider that Jesus is not of this world. His nature, his office, and his character. Let's look at each. Well, the first is Jesus' nature. Jesus is supernatural, right? We know that he was conceived by the, well, through the angel Gabriel with Mary, and yet he is a human being. He is fully man, and he is more than just a group of random particles colliding, and so are we. We are also supernatural. That is our nature. While our conceptions may not have been miraculous, unless you consider the general wonder of God and bringing babies to life a kind of miracle, we are more than just stardust. That's a kind of popular phrase these days, you know, to, oh, it's so amazing that billions of years ago there was this stardust and eventually it turned into you. Like that's supposed to give us some great meaning or something. But no, we're more than stardust. We are more than mere Nature, we are the greatest of all the species on earth. It's okay to say that, because only we are made in God's image. So it's wrong to kick dogs, but it's even more wrong to kick a person, because humans are different. We are supernatural. And so as Jesus' nature is not of this world, well, neither is ours. The second way that Jesus does not belong to this world is his office. Jesus holds a particular office that no one else in this world can hold. He is, of course, the Savior of the world. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. But in a similar way, not exact, of course, we also have offices that are unlike others. That is to say that disciples hold offices that, as virtue of being disciples, they are different from those who are not disciples. We hold vocations as parents, or employees, or citizens, uh, husbands and wives, and we hold all of those offices as disciples. And we should hold all of those offices differently because we are disciples. 
We bring certain virtues, Christian virtues, to all of those offices because we are Christians. The virtues of prudence and thrift and a love of life. Of course, so much more could be said on each of those offices. Whole sermon series could be offered, but let's just say that on the whole, maybe not to a person, but on the whole, the world should be able to tell the difference between a Christian salesman or baker or parent or child or citizen from a non-Christian salesman or baker or parent or child or citizen. Now third, Jesus' character does not belong to this world. In a world of scarce resources, which is the world in which we live, you know, resources like gasoline, plywood, right? Competition is a mark of the world. It's a hallmark of the world, both among men and animals. So greed and lust and violence are hallmarks of the world, or a worldly attitude. Christians, of course, are commanded to exercise self-control, to manage their expectations, to be modest in their desires, and to be restrained in their appetites. We are commanded to share, and to be generous, and to be responsible for our own well-being. So our character is not one of fearful hoarding, and certainly not greedy or violent gain. Rather, as Christ sacrificed for us, we sacrifice for others. So in each of those three ways, Jesus is not of this world, and, and hopefully I've appropriately applied in those ways in terms of our, our nature and our character and our offices that we are not of this world either. And certainly this isn't the only text that speaks of this. There are several others that might come to mind. Philippians 3.20, for example, says that our commonwealth, or you might say our citizenship, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Or James 4.4, a very quotable line, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And John also writes in the epistle, the first one, chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So this is a theme we see throughout the scriptures. Certainly even the Old Testament. One can think of the prophets who are always calling on Israel to be faithful to the one true God, to not follow into worldly idols and idolatry. Remember, for example, the Israelites want a king because all the other nations of the world have kings. And Samuel says, no, 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 you don't want a king. He'll plunder your wealth. He'll take your daughters from you. He'll send your sons off to war. They said, no, we really want a king. And then they got kings. And guess what the kings did? Took their wealth, sent their kids off to war, blah, blah, blah. So what does this detachment from the world really look like, though? And what does the world's hatred of the church look like? Because guess what? This is a two-way street. We always think of this be not of the world like we can just safely withdraw from the world. But I think this is a two-way street where we say to the world, 
thanks but no thanks we're going to kind of do our thing over here according to christian principles and virtues and values and whatnot but the world is like well we, we don't actually want anything to do with you what does this not belonging thing look like what are the worldly movements or trends right now to which we don't belong because guess what for every generation it's different that's why i said we're always having to evaluate this statement not of the world what does it mean today for the past i don't know maybe 60 70 years or so we have generally enjoyed peace and prosperity so generally we've enjoyed it so much that whenever a text like this comes up what the church says is well don't enjoy the world too much all right that's what it means to not be of the world don't enjoy all the pleasures of the world too much because they're so abundant there was always the the fringe kind of weirdo atheist out there that was like but they're crusades but the inquisition right uh, someone out there just saying oh the church is bad we don't want the church's influence in the world and yes during this 60 or 70 years or so the silent retreat from the church had already begun just this week i was reading a in, in a newsletter i get a lutheran newsletter and every newsletter it has a snippet from a previous version of that newsletter a previous episode or, or a, a publication and there was a, a clip from the 80s the 1980s like 1981 that was worried about precipitous decline in the lutheran churches you know, so we've been worried about this sort of thing for a very long time. But still, even during that period, by and large, as the world prospered, the church prospered too. You know, even though we were losing people, we still had enough money to do a lot of what we wanted to do, so we weren't really worried about all of that. But barring a sea change, I'm not sure that we'll be able to live peacefully side by side indefinitely. We might be reaching a time, not when a majority of people out there, you know, just our neighbors and people we hang out with and whatnot, but a majority of people in influence and power, they're going to start to be openly questioning, you know, the, the worth of the church, the value of the church. Indeed, to the extent that the church refuses to go along with the popular ideologies of our day, we could be seen as an obstacle, you know, to progress. If we continue to hold the line on things like marriage or gender or even forgiveness itself, we will be seen as a problem. How can this be, we wonder? We're such nice people. We want what's best for everybody. Don't people like us? Well, if I had to try to summarize it very briefly, this is what I think is going on and it's gone on many many times throughout history it's nothing new belief that a utopian world is just around the corner it's a very powerful idea the belief that we only need a few new ideas for a much better world but they have to be ideas that don't include the conventional or traditional power dynamics of old that's a very seductive thought and so for a better world, we have to get rid of some of these old ways of doing things. And belief in this utopian vision, it becomes so powerful. It becomes a religious quest in and of itself. So we can't possibly going, be going parallel anymore. Something has to give. 
See, Christians do not and they cannot share this utopian vision. It's been beaten out of us. That's what Genesis 1 to 11 does. Utopia, if you will, the Garden of Eden, but we fell into sin. And then the world was evil, so there was a flood, so we got down to eight people again, but then they were evil too. And so on, so we, 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 just, we just can't possess that view. Our, our gospel message isn't that, hey, you know, now is the time to rethink every human institution because this time we'll get it right. Our message is trust in Christ, call Him Lord, and love one another. So, we will be seen as holding up progress. We will be seen as, as holding up these traditions that are, that, are, that are not allowing us to be better. But they, that is, this world to which we do not belong, they'll see us as worse than neutral. We might be the enemy. Unless, of course, the Lordship of Christ becomes acceptable to the masses once again. Now that is how I think we don't belong to the world. The world will chase a fantasy and we will be rooted in reality. And of course I think that in time, time always shows that the biblical way of understanding things is just the right way, the only way. Hopes to replace Christian hopes for fantasies will fail. So don't be too surprised if the world sees you as a problem. And, you know, don't take it personally. You know, you're just trying to stand for, for what you believe is right. But also, don't let it discourage you. For Jesus is praying for you. He is speaking to the Father to intercede for you. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And he will never forsake or lose a single one of his disciples. As Paul beautifully writes elsewhere, a very famous passage, I'm sure you know it well. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.